This is what God's Word says. Hebrews 1, 1 1-4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's be seated as we pray. Father, these four verses have so much to say to us. But we can't hear what you have to say if we're dull of hearing. If our minds and our hearts aren't open to your voice. And so just our our collective prayer right now is, Father, by your Spirit, cause us to be able to hear. And not just hear with ears, but actually hear with open hearts and minds. So that we as a community and as individuals can be shaped by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you've had the experience, you're sitting in a room with other people, but you're oblivious to what's going on. You have that blank, distant stare. And it's not that you're lost in your thoughts. You're just lost, zoned out. Your mind just tapped out. You're sitting there. Suddenly, whap! Something hits you. Maybe it's literal, and you're snapped out of your detached state. If you can relate to that experience at all, then you can understand how the first four verses of Hebrews would have hurt, would have hit the original people to whom it was written. Remember last week we saw that it was written to a Christian community who was weary and worn. Their faith was threadbare. They suffered from what we called spiritual anemia. So that's, that's the people. They're just kind of comatose, just staring. And then the author just whap! With these four verses, he hits them right out, of the, right out of the gate. They're meant to jolt them from their lethargy, to wake them up. It's an intervention of sorts. Awake from your doldrums. You need Jesus. So it's Jesus right out of the box, boldly, profoundly, whap, a big dose of Jesus full on in the first four verses. Now as we talked about last week, it's not just the original recipients who sometimes suffered from spiritual anemia. Many of us are susceptible to the same disease that plagued them. Sure, we love Jesus, but we're lethargic. We're coasting spiritually. It's not that we've rejected Jesus, but His sway over our hearts is waning. 
we've lost sight of just how glorious He is. And this study in Hebrews that our church is commencing is the God-given antidote to that spiritual anemia. And so he starts out for us, whap, right out of the gate, to let us, to let us be gripped by this Jesus. And so what, what I want to have happen this morning is for all of us just to open ourselves to being jolted. Jolted into grasping Jesus' glory rightly. But we're not told in the first four, Jesus, four verses that it's Jesus that we're being whapped with. All we're told is it's a son. So we could call this sermon, or these four verses, Introducing a Son. And really they introduce him in two parts. Chapter 1, or verse 1 and the first part of verse 2. So 1 to 2a, if you're keeping notes. And then the second part is 2b, the second half of verse 2, all the way through 4. So let's look at the first part of the introduction. Introducing a son, the capstone of God's revelation. Listen again to what it says in these verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. What if I told you that there was a new way of listening to music? In the past, your parents listened on vinyl, eight tracks, cassette tapes, CDs, and even MP3s. Some may even remember when the iPod revolutionized the industry. But all those different ways of listening to music, though they were varied, they were just one category for how to listen to music, albeit an important one. Without these types of listening devices, we wouldn't know the Beatles. You too, the tragically hip, or most importantly, Justin Bieber. <laughs> but now, now there is a new category for listening to music. It's not just another way, not the latest evolution of music listening that just comes after the iPod. No. It's an altogether different way of listening. It's in its own category. And it's the final way we will ever listen to music. We will never listen to music another way. Now, if I told you that, you'd probably be a bit intrigued about what I was going to say next. Also highly skeptical, but at least a little intrigued. That's what these first verse and a half sound like. It's saying, think about the Old Testament. God spoke. He spoke through dreams, through oracles. He spoke audibly. He spoke through angels, through burning bushes, at one point through a donkey, or writing with a hand on a wall. And through all of these different ways that God was speaking to them then, 
we learn something about who God was or is and about the world and what his plans are for this world. And he would almost always authenticate those various ways of speaking by making some sort of predictive prophecy. So you'd know it was from God, not man-made. This was all a way of speaking that God had that was important. But now the author is saying there is something new altogether. God has spoken a final word. word. In this, these last days, this final era, he speaks something altogether different of a whole different category. And it is his son. That's how he speaks. His son. A son who we'll see in just a moment is the exact imprint of his nature. A son who the Bible elsewhere calls the word made flesh. And this word also came with an authenticating sign, the definitive authenticating sign. He said he would die and rise from the dead, never to die again. And that's exactly what happened. So there is the old way that is good, but there is a new way that is in its own category. Do you see the contrast that the author is doing? Do you see what he's trying to do? The author deliberately draws our attention to these two in contrast. So he compares long ago to in these last days. Now the phrase in these last days, when the scriptures read it, refer to the time from when Jesus ascends into heaven and to when he returns. The final era of our time here on earth. Right? These are the last days. And so it's, it's this final era he's speaking to. Contrast long ago in these last days. Also a contrast at many times and in many ways. And then implied now just one way. A word given to our fathers. A word given to us. Do you see the highly structured way he's comparing and contrasting the two ways, the two categories of speaking? But then comes the final contrast. The great unveiling of the new category. In the past, long ago, the messages came by the prophets. Now it comes by his own son. Now where it says that in verse 2, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. If you were to just read the Greek literally, it would say something like this. Now He has spoken to us by Son. That reads kind of awkwardly, which is why our translation has added the word His. But the word His isn't there in the Greek. And that word choice of leaving that out is very deliberate. It's it's meant to draw our attention to this son, to intrigue us about just who this son is. I think we could capture the, the kind of feel if we translate it like this. Now he has spoken to us by one who is a son. One who is a son. What are you talking? 
Tell me more. What about this son? We're being told by God himself a new era has arrived. God's one and final revelation has come. This is it. This is the capstone, guys, and we would do well to pay attention. So we're being introduced to a son, the capstone of God's revelation. Now before I move on to the second part, I do want to draw out, I think, three really important implications of this verse and a half. First, I want you to see in in this verse and a half the close relationship between the Old Testament and between Christ. Now, the, the author here at this point in Hebrews has only hinted at that for us by saying, God spoke, God has spoken. You know, God and speaking the same kind of, same words more or less, slightly different, but same words. There's a unity here. And even he spoke by the prophets, by his son. There's a parallel there. It's showing that there's some connection here. But what he's only hinting at here ends up coursing through the whole book. The Old Testament will be the means the author uses throughout the book of Hebrews to proclaim Christ. The author of Hebrews takes pains both exegetically, looking at the details of the Old Testament, the actual text, and theologically, he takes pains to show how the Old Testament only makes sense in light of Christ. He's showing us how it relentlessly points to Jesus, how Jesus totally fulfills it. Or to paraphrase a a third century pastor, Christ is enfolded into the Old Testament and the Old Testament is unfolded in Christ. It's, it's, not enough, it's not enough to say that, the, that Christ is the key that unlocks the Old Testament. That's, that's part of what we're getting. But it's not, that, it's not simply that he's the fulfillment. The author's going to press it even further. He's, he's going to show us that we can't even understand Christ with all the appropriate texture and fullness God intends unless we understand the Old Testament Scriptures. Do you hear what I'm saying here? I'm saying it's not just, okay, now that I understand Christ, I can understand the Old Testament. Now it makes sense. What we're doing, what we're saying is that by understanding the Old Testament, we actually understand Christ better. So I said, whap, he hits us right out of the gate with Jesus. Last week when we did the introduction, I said, these weary Christians, what he knows they need is Jesus. But his means for bringing Jesus to them is to go into the details of the Old Testament and unfold that and explain that to them so that they see Jesus. Do you see, he's not just saying, okay, you need to understand the Old Testament. Let me give you a little lesson on how Jesus unlocks the Old Testament. He's saying, to understand Christ fully, for me to really capture your hearts with Jesus, I need to go back to the tabernacle. I need to go back to Melchizedek. I need to go back to the 
new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So the first implication from this verse and a half is is it should bend us towards seeing the Old Testament as a signal pointing us ahead to Christ and helping us understand Christ. Christ is enfolded into the Old Testament and the Old Testament is unfolded in Christ. Now there's a second implication from these verses and it's one that was really foundational for me as a young man. Uh, If you know anything about me, you know that I'm somebody who doesn't just uh, hold to things because I'm told to hold to them. And uh, as is generally the case, if that's true of you now, it was probably particularly true of you as a younger man. That was true for me. So, you know, I'm given this Bible. I grew up in the church, grew up around Christians. I'm given a Bible and I'm told this is God's word. Why, why just that? Is he still speaking today? How do we know there aren't prophets just like the biblical prophets who are revealing more of God's word? How do we know this is the, the canon? This is the fullness of what God has said, his revealed word. I mean, how do we know God isn't still uttering scriptures today? Maybe you've, you've had these questions too. This, this verse, these two verses were so helpful for me. Because he says, in these last days, that is the days we now live in between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, in these last days, God has already spoken. It doesn't say he is speaking, but it says he has spoken his definitive word. That word has already been uttered, and that word is Christ. That word about the Son completes the whole story of the Bible. That story that begins in Genesis in the Garden of Eden and the fall from God's uh, perfect world as man rebelled against God. That story that shows God has a heart to redeem and is going to rescue His people. And that ends all the way in Revelation when God actually does bring in a whole new kingdom that's like Eden but only way better. That whole story, the story of humanity, of this world, from beginning to end, according to Scripture, finds its center in Christ. He is the one word that completes the story. And now that He has come, there is nothing more to say. So Jesus is the culmination, the end of God's revelation. Jesus is God's final word. And if Jesus is God's final word, we ought not be looking for another word. If Christ is the capstone of God's revelation, we we ought not anticipate the need for God to say anything more. In fact, I believe that it diminishes Christ's glory to look for revelation beyond Him. That was the discovery for me as a young man that helped me so much It helped me so much in understanding the nature of God's communication and why it would be closed after the apostles showed us how Jesus made sense of the whole story of the Bible. 
So the second implication is this. The canon, as it's sometimes called, is closed. We should not be expecting further revelation from God. I told you there were three implications. The first two were primarily theological. The third is about our heart. God has spoken to us. He's spoken to us of one who is a son. He's spoken to us. The capstone of the Bible. The final word from God is known to us. Whap! Let it shake us out of our lethargy. Let, us hit, let it hit us over our heads and wake us up. Be introduced again to a son. The capstone of God's revelation. Maybe. Maybe we should get reacquainted. Maybe we need to wake up and realize what a privileged position we have. And and that's basically the point that's made by the remaining verses, the second part of our sermon, verses 2b through 4. They're not really doing something altogether new. They're still introducing a son to us. And they're just saying, this son that we just talked about, that's the capstone of God's revelation, this son is wondrous. He's worthy of our attention. He needs to grow bigger and bigger in our minds. We need to let, allow His figure to dominate the horizons of our minds and our hearts. The author accomplishes this. The saying, hey, pay attention to the Son. He accomplishes that by heaping on seven phrases that further describe the Son. You see, in the Greek, verses 1 to 4 are just one long sentence. And if you read it, it has a feel like a dam bursting. Long ago, God spoke this way. Now he speaks by a son. And boom, once that word son is spoken, the author can't hold back and just cascading down is phrase after phrase of this son, appointed heir of all things, through whom God created the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by His powerful word. He made purification for our sins and sat down. He is superior to the angels. They just cascade and gush from Him. All related to this concept of this one Son. So what I want to do is just look at each one of these phrases phrases briefly just to make sure that we understand them. But before I do that, I want to challenge us. Can we all just, in these seven phrases as I work through them, commit ourselves to trying to allow Jesus to capture our hearts again? Can we ask God to use His Word to help Jesus regain His rightful place in our hearts 
and in our minds. You see, at least if you're like me, he slipped a bit. Or for some, maybe he was never in the right spot to begin with. I've been wrestling with this. This has been a... I, as I've been preparing on these verses, you know, I'm trying to understand them, but I'm also being gripped by them. Why don't I see Jesus the way I should? You see, we have a carnal and mortal mind. And so for us, it is a struggle to capture all His greatness. And yet that's the very thing we need to do. We who have this spiritual anemia, we who are lethargic in our faith, what we need is for the whap of Jesus to hit us again. And yet it's hard. So I'm not going to do anything dramatic or verbally clever. I'm just going to explain each of these phrases to try and help us grasp them. But what I'm asking is for my own heart and for yours is for the Holy Spirit to take these truths and allow them to really sink in and elevate Jesus in our hearts and minds. So let's have a look at these phrases. The first one is appointed heir of all things. Uh, This seems to be a reference to Psalm 2, verse 8, a psalm that talks about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And it's in that psalm that God promises His Son that He'll be the true King of all the world. It says, The nations will be His heritage, and the ends of the earth will be His possession. You see, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. Every nation, many of whom are represented here in this room, every nation owes its allegiance to Him. Every single knee must bow to the one whom God has appointed as King. And let me just say, this King, appointed heir of all things, is far more powerful than Clinton or Trump, far more powerful than Harper or Trudeau, Thatcher or Churchill. Hitler and Nero have no power compared to his because God has appointed him, not them and not us, him as heir to the nation's and the ends of the earth. That is who our Jesus is. The next phrase, through whom He created the world. So we saw that the world, He is the heir of the world, and that makes sense because the world rightfully belongs to Him because He's the means by whom God created it. You see, the Son is not a created being, He is the creating being. Or less awkwardly, He is creator. Together with the Father and the Spirit. 
Have you ever stood in awe of the massive, wondrous world that hangs suspended around us? Our culture tends to be, we're a very Western culture, right? Very rationalistic. We're always explaining things. Look at that star. Do you know how that star got there and that the light that you're seeing is so many thousand years old? It might have even burned out by now. Oh, see that butterfly? Do you know what the lifespan of a butterfly is? Look at that beautiful flower. Its bright colors are there because it wants to attract that butterfly. So the butterfly will come and help it propagate and so on. That kind of rational explanation of things I think is, is right. It's good. It has its place. But does it keep us from just stepping back, standing in awe? Have we lost the ability to marvel? How did all of this come to be? As Terry mentioned, and like some of you, I walked out this morning and saw the most beautiful rainbow strung across the sky. It was one of the most vivid ones I've ever seen. Just shooting up. It just seemed like just a few hundred yards away from me, it felt like shooting up, and you could see it span the whole the whole sky and dip to the other side with its bright, vivid colors. Well, that's because the way the sun's rays are reflecting against the water. No. Why do I get to see this beauty? That's beautiful. Whose idea was it to hang a rainbow in the sky and allow us on a rainy day when that sun is peeking through from the rain to see that beauty? The Bible tells us the answer. Jesus brought it into existence. God the Father created the world through God the Son. Jesus is the one through whom He created the world. The next phrase is the radiance of His glory. Sometimes we get hung up on the word glory. But everything has a certain glory that radiates from it. So you have an old family heirloom. And you look at it and you don't just see an object. There's something, there's some weightiness to it. It has some meaning attached to its character and, and that impacts you when you look at it. We all know the glory of a bride as she walks down the aisle. There is something radiating from her that is more than just, you know, the light coming from her skin. There's a certain power, a certain invisible weight they exude. For me, it's my wife, Karen, who has the, whose glory captures me the most. When I look at her, Yes, her beauty captures me, but I also think of all that we've walked through together, all that we share. Just seeing her and all that glory, that, that weight that is carrying to me comes through. But no created thing has a glory that rivals God. Yes, 
There's the wonder. There's nothing, there's nothing that radiates like the great weight of the one God of the universe who created all and all that he is and all his character, that glory. But here's the amazing thing. If you want to behold that glory, you look to the sun. The glorious light, the glorious weightiness that belongs only to God radiates from the sun. He has that same glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The fourth phrase is the exact imprint of his nature. The word for exact imprint refers to a mark made by a seal. To bear an imprint is to perfectly reflect something. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean Jesus is the imprint of God's shape, or even, as the previous phrase pointed to, the imprint of his glory. We're told he's the exact imprint of his nature. God's nature is perfectly reflected in his Son. Now, it's probably worthwhile to pause right now and just say, if something has another's unique glory and also its exact nature, you really can't say at that point they are different in essence. To have God's glory and his nature is to be God. The Son then must be God. But the point here is that God the Son, as God the Son, He reveals to all of us what God is like. In Him we come to grasp God's glory, and in Him we come to grasp God's nature. So you you have a sense You're looking out in the world, you sense there's something more than just this physical universe. There's got to be something more, some spiritual force out there. We'll call that God. I want to know what that God is like. And the scriptures say that the way to know what that God is like is to get to know Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory. He is the imprint of his nature. The fifth phrase is, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We saw in the first phrase that we looked at that he is the creator of the universe. Now we see that he is the sustainer of the universe. This is one of my favorite ones to try and get my mind around. Jesus' arms stretch all through the universe like a divine glue holding it all together. I love how Kent Hughes captured it. He said, He holds all those quarks and leptons in the microcosm together by the mysterious Coulomb electrical force He made and maintains. And He likewise sustains the fleeing galaxies of the universe. Similarly, if he speaks the word, 
all would end, not with a big bang, but a big fizzle or gulp. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus. The sixth phrase, after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The king, who's heir to all things, the one who created, the one who sustains, the one who shows us what God is like, the one, this phrase tells us, who sits enthroned next to the majesty on high, next to the Father, this great, magnificent one made purification for our sins. For our sins. Just think about the filth that your mind sometimes entertains. Think about some of the base things that you've done, that I've done. Think about those crooked inclinations of your heart that you wish weren't there, but you can't shake them. Think of those dark memories that haunt you, those hidden desires that only you know about. That's what he made purification for. That's to say, he paid the sacrifice so that the dark corners of your soul and my soul could be made clean. You're sitting here this morning and you're saying, I've got those dark corners, but I'm looking around. All the people here seem like they got their lives pretty well in order. You know, everyone here is here. Everyone who is here is here because we realize the nature of our own hearts and we know we need a Savior in Jesus. You're not unique feeling that way. That is what every one of us is. We all need purifications for our sins. And the price for that sacrifice was not small. It required the eternal Son to leave all that he had in heaven and to sink low, lower than the angels for a season. It, it, it required him to become a man, to be born in relative poverty, eventually to be beaten and abandoned by his closest friends. And then, worst of all, to bear the full weight of God's wrath against sin on his own shoulders as he hung writhing on a Roman cross. We need to have this picture indelibly inked on our minds. This picture of the God of the universe who created it, who sustains it, who's heir of it, making purification for our sins by absorbing the wrath that rightfully belongs to us. Because remember a little bit ago how I said Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature? Well, if you combine it with this picture, then this, that means that the God who made this world is merciful. Merciful. 
and gracious. And he abounds in steadfast love. He takes sin seriously. He must punish it, but he's also willing to make a way for us despite our sin. That's what this son has done for you and for me. So let's not regard him in any way less than what he deserves. Let's allow his figure to dominate the horizons of our hearts and our minds. The great king of the universe is the great deliverer of my soul. The last phrase, the seventh phrase says, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now after the the previous six phrases we've looked at, it might feel a little bit like this one kind of ends with a whimper. Why are we bringing up the angels? I mean, does that really matter? But in the scriptures, and particularly in Hebrews, there is a close link between the angels and God's revelation. So just look in chapter 2 on the same page in verse 2. It's talking about the Old Testament message, and he says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. You see, when, when the author here is talking about the angels, he's, he's got this idea of, them as revealers of God in mind. And so what he's doing here is he's bringing up the original point, God is the, Jesus is the capstone of the revelation, in his conclusion. If the angelic messengers carried the message long ago and in many ways, the sun now eclipses them. I mean, you could send a messenger... Or you could send your son. God's done both. But now in these last days, he's sent his son. And the son is far superior. Indeed, as we've seen and will continue to see, those angelic messengers were merely pointing forward to him. Now I know that there is a little bit confusing in this. It's a little confusing in this verse when it talks about his, his name becoming more superior to them, or him inheriting the name, the name Son. I mean, wasn't he eternally the Son? And in what ways is God's Son somehow become greater than the angels? Well, we know he was able to become greater than the angels, not because he wasn't eternally, but he chose for a season to become like a man, a little lower than the angels. And then, after conquering death, he ascended. And that's when he again became higher than the angels. And and, and the title of Son, which is his eternally, always his. And yet we know from Psalm 2 that there's a certain sense in which this Son assumes the throne at some future point. And I think Psalm 2 is in mind when it talks about him inheriting that name Son not because he wasn't son and his eternal relationship with the father, the rest of the Bible makes that clear, but because there's something that the Hebrews author has in mind when he's talking about what he did and what he accomplished, and it enabled him to be the Psalm 2 type of king, which God knew he would be all along. 
Now, I know that's a little bit of a, an aside for those of you who get hung up and say, wait a second, he's the eternal son, and yet it says this. I thought that was worth explaining. But in trying to sort out those details, I don't want us to lose the focus, the point. What the angels do so powerfully, serve as God's messengers, aid the prophets in declaring God's message, Jesus far surpasses. In verse 1, in the, second, or in the first half of 2, the Son was introduced, the capstone of God's revelation. And then as soon as he says the word Son, the dam breaks and outpours all that we see about how glorious this Son is. These seven phrases. In those seven phrases, we see Jesus as the ruler, inheriting the throne, creating and sustaining the world. We see him as the revealer, showing us God's nature and his glory, surpassing even the angels as a revealer of God. And for a third R, we see him as the redeemer, making purification for our sins, and now interceding on our behalf at God's right hand. Ruler, revealer, redeemer. Whap! Jesus is worth getting to know. And not just in a superficial, he died for my sins sort of way. I mean, I don't mean that superficial, but that's not just at that level. But at a how does he relate to Melchizedek sort of level. Uh, Let's really get to know him as the scriptures reveal him level. I want to close the sermon with a final observation about this passage. Did you notice that these four verses make no reference to Jesus? Just look. His name is not mentioned. Jesus, the name. What about Christ? Nope. Not there. Any other references to him? Lion of Judah, Root of Jesse, Branch of David... Nope, nope, nope. Just one solitary reference. A son. God has spoken to us by one who is a son. I love what God's doing here. It's beautiful. He's, he's wetting our appetite. He's, he's piquing our curiosity. He spoke about one who is a son. And I'm going to tell you about this son. In many ways, long time ago, he spoke by the prophets. But now he speaks by one who is a son. Who? Who, who is this son? That's the capstone of God's revelation. But he doesn't tell us. He just tells us he's the heir of all things, creator of the world, exact imprint of God's nature, purification for our sins. But doesn't unveil his identity. Do you see what he's doing? It's designed to leave us saying, who is this son? Now the author knows that we know the answer. But he's teasing us. He's begging us to to learn more. He's piquing our curiosity. So I just want to pique yours. 
as you are reading ahead in Hebrews, look for how long the author waits. How long he keeps the suspense going until he reveals the identity of this son. He wants to draw us in. He wants to jolt us. He wants to shake us from our doldrums. He wants to leave us longing to know this son in greater depth. So I think it's, it's beautiful that here on Psalm, or in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1, what do we have before us this morning but the Lord's table? table. It's a reminder of that son who is our ruler, the revealer, and our redeemer. And in just a moment, we're going to enjoy this meal together. And I just want to encourage you, like we talked about, to pause, consider these seven phrases, ask God to help Jesus, the figure of Jesus, who He is, dominate the horizon of your heart and mind. Do that as these elements are passed. In our church, we hold the bread and the cup so we can all take those together. As the elements are passed and you're holding those, just think about this Jesus and pray to God and ask Him to cause Him to grip you, to cause you to grip to grasp who Jesus is all the more. That's what the author is doing for us. It's a whap for us to wake us from our doldrums. And as we have the table, let's take advantage of that time. As I pray, after I pray, I'm going to ask those who will be serving communion to come forward with me. Father, I need this word as much as anybody else in this room. I try to faithfully explain what's here, but unless your spirit is working in our midst, causing us to be gripped afresh, or perhaps for the first time by this Jesus, we, we, can't, we can't do anything. We're, we're not going to be able to manufacture that on our own. And so even as we, we consider his body and his blood broken for us, that picture... pray that by your spirit you would awaken our hearts to who this Jesus is, this son. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.